Okay, let's begin. If you turn in your Bibles to uh, John 19, 25-27, we're looking at um, Jesus saying from the cross where he says to his mother, um, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple he loves, behold your mother. So if you're there, um, we'll read that. Um, okay. But... But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Okay, now this is part of a bigger story, and as she wouldn't just watch the last five minutes of a film, so you shouldn't just read the last chapters of John's Gospel without thinking about what comes before. Uh, Jesus has come to earth, the word of God, John says. He is God in human form. He has shown himself to be God through seven different miraculous signs. Um, he turned water into wine. He healed an official's son. He healed a lame man. He fed a great crowd of 5,000. He walks on for water, he heals a blind man, and he even resurrects a man called Lazarus from the dead. Um, there are then great sections of teaching through John's Gospel, of uh, Jesus teaching different people. But as he goes through, you can see that Jesus is on a mission, and its goal will be in Jerusalem. Um, all through the first 12 chapters, there's this constant refrain, the hour has not yet come. Then we get to chapter 12 and 23, Jesus says, the hour has come, and suddenly the whole plot of the gospel slows down, and the next uh, seven chapters, 12 to 19, um, take place in just uh, two days, no, one day, um, as um, the Passover feast comes, and... Um, Jesus celebrates that with his disciples. We get a huge detail into that meal, just taking up four chapters of the gospel. Um, Jesus, things like Jesus teaching, a whole chapter given to a prayer of Jesus. Uh, Jesus sends out Judas to betray him. And what we get here is a distinct impression that Jesus is in control. He has planned all this. And there's something massive about to happen, but we don't quite know what it will be. So we're left to wonder, what is this hour that John has talked about through his gospel, and why is it coming now? I think a problem of this is that we all know the gospel too well as Christians. Yeah. Um, so we're not getting the sort of confusion and uh, amazement of reading this for the first time. So imagine that this is your first time at church, your first time hearing the gospel. What has John told you, and what do you know? Well, you know that Jesus is a great teacher, and you know he claims to be God. And John's told us seven signs that uh, lead us to believe that actually he is from God. You even hear a voice from heaven has spoken to him. Um, but then he says he must die, which is confusing, because how can God die, and why would he come mm. to die? Mm. Um, well, John has given hints through the gospel, and perhaps the most famous of this is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So let's look at how that plays out in this passage. What is the hour of Jesus' death, and why? Well, on the surface of it, we could say that it's because people couldn't stand Jesus and had want to get rid of him. But 
we've looked closely at this the last few weeks. And last week we saw it was actually so Jesus could look at the thief on the cross next to him and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm. And for the week before we said it was so he could look at those around him and say, Father, forgive them. Um, Jesus went for cross for a purpose. And today we're going to look at how he does this so that he could put his servants before him. He could put his disciples and followers before him. And so he could swap their judgment for his immeasurable richness. Uh, So um, in case you've forgotten it, um, we'll read the passage again. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. What we want to see here is that Jesus is in complete control. Um, these are not the words of someone who is surprised by where he is. They're not the words of someone um, dying without a cause. They're the words of someone who um, has a purpose and so knows what is going on. He's not desperately shouting out uh, for help or trying to give his last words to people. He's got a message for them that is clear and succinct. Um, So uh, why? Well, you could argue that, why is Jesus savish? You could argue that he's just looking for peace of mind, that he's got this thing he's left undone, his mother's welfare, and he wants to make sure she's okay when he's gone. Um, But I don't think that's quite right, because he's not doing it for himself, he's doing it for her. Um, Because if he was concerned with his own welfare at this point, he would be saying something like, um, tell my disciples how much I care for them, or uh, remember me well for what I've done. But he's concerned with their own goods, not his own, even at his lowest moment. Um, so I've said that Jesus' words show he's in control, and they're so calm, you just got to wonder, um, did he mean to go to the cross? And the answer is, of course, yes. And that's amazing, because why would he want to go to the cross? Um, it's a horrible way to die, and we learn he's actually under the judgment of God. Um, but in John's Gospel, we've already seen in chapter three, fourteen, eight, twenty-eight, and twelve, verse thirty-two, that he said, "The Son of Man must be lifted up." And John says this: he said to show how he was going to die, so he knew it was going to happen. Um, he. We also learned that he wanted to avoid it if possible. Um, twelve chapters, twelve and thirteen say he was greatly troubled by this fate that was coming to him. But, and if we go uh, cheat and go to Matthew's gospel, we learn that he said, Father, if there's any way, take this from me. But he had a mission, and there was only way, one way that could be completed, and that was by him going to the cross. And this means that this is Jesus putting his people before himself in the most amazing way. No one wants to die, but someone will die for someone they love. And in fact, their words would be, I want to die, because not because they're morbid, but because they've got a great purpose in that. And if the purpose is great enough, then someone will die. And Jesus here, his purpose is you. 
His purpose in death is you. And um, Hebrews puts it like this. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Um, Jesus is on the cross and so that he can feel, fulfill um, John 3.16 for his people in that he has this hope that they will have everlasting life with the Father and with him. Um, and he must do this by paying the price of sin on the cross. Mm. So it is through this hope that he is able to endure and able to be so calm because he is in complete control and he knows what is going to happen. Uh, and if Jesus is in control on the cross at his lowest point, we've got to think how much more control is he in now that he is raised and glorified at the Father's right hand. Um, he says that it's for the joy set before him, so he knows where he's going. He's going to be with God. He is now the happiest person in the universe because his whole plan is working together according to his purpose. He has done the hard work of salvation and he's now resting at the Father's right hand waiting to come back and be vindicated for what he's done. I think there are also lessons here to be learned about um, faith and wisdom for us. Um, Jesus hands his mother over to the care of John and not to his brothers. And we've got to wonder, why is that? We hear a lot about Jesus' brothers in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, and James, for instance, goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. And they go on to do great things. But all we hear about from in John's gospel comes from John uh, chapter 7, verse 5. And it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Um, and we learn that in John 2, Jesus' disciples put their faith in him. So this is the difference between John and Jesus' brothers that makes Jesus say this to his disciple, that it is you who are to look after my mother. For... Um, there are two types of wisdom in the world. There is the wisdom that comes from God and there is the wisdom that is wrong. And Jesus entrusts uh, the thing that is most important to him uh, to someone who loves God and who has God's wisdom. Because Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, mm. but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Uh, this is not to make us proud as Christians. We'd all be fools if it wasn't for God's grace. And if you are here and not a Christian, hear me out on this. This isn't arrogance because I'm talking about a gift. And a gift from God is not something that we earn as Christians. It's something that he gives us out of grace. But if you are a Christian uh, and facing big choices in your life, there's always this temptation to look to worldly wisdom because the Bible teaches we all want to fit in. But God says, um, trust me and my wisdom. Uh, lost my place. But I think there's more here to be said. Um, and I think this is probably the biggest point of the passage. But it's hidden. So we're going to have to do some work on it. Um, John is a book, it's a story, and there are little details that authors love to make 
to put into their literature to make you think so that you won't get the whole story without putting some work in yourself and to make you think, oh, that's clever and to make you wonder at the intricacy of which he puts it together. And the Bible teaches us that the whole book is put together by the Holy Spirit, God. And let me hypothesize that he is probably the best writer in all of history. Um, So I believe there is a hidden story here. And if I can't find it in any commentaries I looked at, I you can feel free to argue with me afterwards, and that would actually be fun for me because no one's ever done it before. Um, <laughs> so let's read John 2, verses 1 to 11. And while you turn to that, I'm going to get a drink. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what's this had to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted for water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, he said to the servants who had drawn, he, he said to the uh, bridegroom, everyone serves a good wine first, and when the people who have drunk too much, they bring out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And now let's contrast that to our passage, but we're going to read a bit further. But standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clovas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he talked Uh, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, and so they put the sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a holy day, uh, the Jews asked Pilate um, that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He said he saw it. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Again, the scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. And now let's look at the connections. 
And here we have a sort of geeky graph. Um, we have on the left John 2 and on the right John 19. And you'll look um, and see that in John 2, Jesus refers to his mother with this term woman. And in John 19, he calls her the same woman. These the only two times Mary, Jesus' mother, appears in John's gospel. He then goes on to say something to her. My hour has not yet come. And he has something to say to her. Behold your son in the second. Next we hear that the servants are told to obey. And in John 19, Jesus' disciple, his servant, obeys. Um, in John 2, there are jars of water. And in John 19, there is a jar of sour wine. Um, in John 2, the wine is taken to the master of the banquet. In John 19, the sour wine is taken to Jesus. Um, we hear it's the best wine and we hear it is for sour wine. And then we're told in John 2, the disciples believed in him. And in John 19, we're told to believe in him. And this is a quite typical um, way of making a connection in literature, to have mirror images through two different sections. Um, but what is connecting these two um, stories? Well, it's the theme of wine. At the, um, at the wedding banquet, they'd run out of wine, and Jesus provides it for them. Here, Jesus is thirsty, and they give him wine. But you'll notice that at one, it is the best wine. At the other, it's sour wine. Now, wine in the Bible has two connotations. Uh, funnily enough, it's good wine and bad wine. Um, good wine, we hear, makes glad the heart of man. It comes at a time of harvest and plenty when the Lord is blessing his people. They drank wines at feasts and they offered wine to God in sacrifice to remember that God is good. The metaphor of bad wine, though, comes about far more in the Bible. The wine which makes man stag stagger and wine which makes him blind. The wine which is forced upon people by an angry God as a punishment for their sins. The psalmist calls it a foaming cup of judgment. So let's read one of these examples, which is Jeremiah 15:70, where it says... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand a cup of wine of wrath and make the nations who I send drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because I'm sending a sword among them. So I took from the hand of the Lord the wine and made the nations who the Lord sent me to drink it. The Bible has this picture of wine as... God's judgment. It talks about God treading out the rhyme press of his wrath. And this is what we all deserve because Revelation um, 13, verse 8, and somewhere else, 14, 9 to 11, say that all who do not worship God and who um, worship instead the beast and its images deserve the wrath of God for they have not kept God's law and are not in the book of the Lamb and God will pour out on them the wine of his wrath 
And this is why John 3.16 is so important. There's this grave problem we have that God has this standard. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this is the standard of holiness set for us throughout the whole Bible. And we've not kept it. None of us have kept that standard. For one man who has kept that standard is Jesus. And he comes and lives a life keeping God's law, living as men should live. The problem is, though, that if Jesus comes just as the hero who he is through scripture, his job is rather like that of a superhero to get rid of evil. Um, But where are we in that equation? We are evil. We're all against God. We, none of us live as we should. We, none of us live for his glory. And so, though we say, Lord, get rid of evil, and we see that is good, we say, defeat those who do wrong, we actually learn that that means defeat us, come and destroy us as well. And that can't be good news. It's never good news for, for villains in stories when the hero turns up, because they know that their time has come. So Jesus does this amazing thing. He actually comes as the villain. Um, he comes as the one who we considered despised by God, stricken and afflicted. Mm. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who had no sin and who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what we're seeing here, is that there's this picture of the wine of God's blessing, which Jesus creates at the um, wedding banquet, which he deserves to have, because he is the Holy One who has kept God's law perfectly and who deserves God's blessing, is instead given to those who don't deserve it, And because someone has to take the wine of God's wrath, he swaps over. He says, I first, and he drinks the sour wine. And he takes the punishment of God so that God can make us holy. And so that, as John says in John 3.16, we can have everlasting life with the Father. Jesus suffers so that we can live. Jesus dies so that we can have life with God. (laughs) This is what he's doing here. This is why he went to the cross. This is why he died for us. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your saviour, I beg you to look closely at what he has done because he is coming again as the hero of the universe to get rid of evil once and for all. And and, uh, that will be you if you're not trusting in him. But the good news is, he says, um, he says, come to me, all you are thirsty, and I will give you rest. Um, and Isaiah says, um, come drink uh, without cost. There's no cost to coming to Jesus, because he paid for the cost. It's not your cost to pay, it's what he paid, what he did for you, that means you can come and seek salvation with Jesus. So come and trust in him. 
well, I've not got much more to say, so I think it's time to go for coffee, and unless Nigel wants to do anything more. <laughs>